I don't know if they were put up to this, but I have about all my students up here going, Ryan, you can do it. We love you. Like, I've never been up here before. Um, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you don't know, if I haven't met you, uh, my name is Ryan. I'm the youth minister. I'm not normally the one who's preaching on Sunday. That was Brent, who was up here a couple times uh, before. But I'm thankful uh, for not only uh, a pastor and elders that will let me preach, but a church who will uh, stomach the youth minister uh, preaching every once in a while. So I'm grateful to you guys. Um, turn in your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 8. And as you do that, I'm just going to tell you a really quick, funny story. Uh, so this last week, I turned... Uh, I had a birthday, I had I turned 26, and a church member told me not too long ago, well, I heard on the radio that you can't actually be a good minister until you're 26 years old. And I was like, on one part I was like, ouch, but then I was like, oh, that means you can just clear the slate. Any mistake I made before now doesn't count. I wasn't equipped, wasn't 26. So this is my first sermon that counts. So um, everything you've heard before, wipe it out, doesn't matter. Students, that doesn't go for you. Um, you got to remember the stuff I've taught you. So I just thought that was funny. Be sure to put this in your brain because I am 26 now. Um, they said that it's because your brain is done, boys' brains are done like maturing at 26. And I said, can you give me like a six-month grace period on that one? And they, they did. They were very sweet. So uh, Acts chapter 8. Uh, we are going to pick up in our story of Acts and how uh, the church was born, how the gospel is, go I just did a karate chop, Tony. Tony says I like to do karate chops up here, and I just did one. So we're uh, seeing how the gospel is going out uh, to the nations uh, from starting in Jerusalem and then going to Judea and Samaria and eventually uh, to the ends of the earth. And so that is kind of where we're picking up today. Um, but I want to start here. In, in 1952, a short story was released called The Sound of Thunder. It was by an author you may know, uh, Ray Bradbury, who was a science fiction writer from the 50s. And uh, you may have never read this story, you may know nothing about it, but you have definitely heard of a concept that came from this story. And so I'm going to briefly summarize what happens in this story. So there's a guy, it's the year 2055, and there's a guy, and he's a hunter, and uh, there are these places you can go called time safaris. And so he wants to go on this time safari, and he can go back in time and hunt a T-Rex in, in the prehistoric era. So uh, he, he pays a bunch of money, and he goes to this, this, the office of this, this time safari place, and they're kind of briefing him on, hey, here's what you have to do. Uh, and and uh, the most important rule is when you get there, there's going to be a path down on the ground. It's actually going to be levitating on the ground because we can't disturb what's under the ground. We've done our research. The T-Rex that you have to kill is going to die only minutes, it's supposed to die only minutes after this. Um, you have to kill it, uh, you have to go take the bullets out, because if there's any trace, if there's any trace at all that you were here in the past, then it could have ripple effects all throughout the future, and it could change everything. So the main rule, stay on the path, stay on the path, stay on the path. Well, of course, it being a story, things don't go as planned. Uh, the hunter goes to the past, and he stays on this, there's this levitating silver path, and he's walking, and as soon as he see the, sees the T-Rex, he drops his gun, and he starts to run away, and steps off the path. And the people, the, the people that are running the, the time safari are livid with him, and they say, you, we're not even going to bring you back. We don't know that we can even bring you back. This has never happened before, but uh, he eventually sort of begs them, and, and, he, 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 and he's, please, 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 and they, they finally say, okay, uh, couldn't have been, you just stepped off the path briefly, 
couldn't be that bad. Nothing much changed. So we'll, we'll take you back to 2055. So they go back to the future. And when they arrive in the future, everything is different. Everything has changed. Clothes are different. The office looks different. Uh, a different person is president. Uh, and even the English language is indecipherable to this, this hunter. Everything has changed because of one step he took off of the path. And he starts to think and wonder on how could everything have changed so much just from one step off the path. And he starts to, he sits down and he starts to undo uh, his muddy boots, and he looks on the bottom of his boot, and there he has stepped on a butterfly. When he stepped off the path, he crushed a butterfly. And so the idea, the term, the butterfly effect was born. And so I'm sure if you've never heard of that story, or maybe if you've never even heard of the term, the butterfly effect, you've, you've seen a movie where something like this happens. Someone goes back in time, they mess with the past, and they radically change the future. So uh, Back to the Future Part 2 is like that. Uh, the Terminator is like that. Like every comic book in existence, this happens. Uh, Loki, if you've been watching Loki on Disney+, Plus, uh, it's all about this. And so the idea, this, this butterfly effect, is the idea that one small decision in the path, in the past, one small act, the crushing of this tiny part of a vast ecosystem can change the course of history. And that idea that, that one small act can change everything about our lives is pervasive in, in not just our stories that we tell each other, but even in our lives. Many times we, we have these uh, coincidences line up in our lives. We're like, well, if these eight things hadn't have happened, I wouldn't have been able to do this. If these eight things wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have been able to go to this college or to meet this person. And people track back these uh, things that had to line up in their lives. My mom calls them God moments. And I think she's right to call them that because that simple yet beautiful truth, that one thing, one little act can, can change the whole of history, does not come from a science fiction story from the 50s, but it comes from the story of the church here in Acts chapter 8. So uh, in, in chapter 8, we're going to explore uh, a story, uh, a very simple story, but a beautiful story of, of how one effect, one action changes everything for the entire rest of the world. How God is going to build his kingdom through small acts of obedience. God is supernaturally going to use his spirit to stir our affections and our acts of obedience will change the world. We're going to see how the supernatural spread of the gospel comes through ordinary obedience. The supernatural spread of the gospel comes through ordinary obedience. So let's read together Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this, he says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, 
do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we trust that you are leading us still waters. That you are giving us in this morning a moment to catch our breath and sending us to the right direction. God, this morning, uh, through your word, would you align our hearts? Would you align our hearts and our, our thoughts and our, our actions with the person of Jesus? Would you use uh, this text, Father, to show us not just how we can change the world, not just how the gospel message goes out, but, Father, how it changes us. God, your word is living. Your word is powerful. So we pray that you will use it this morning to change our lives. Help us look more like Jesus in this moment than we did the moment before. It is only through your word and through your spirit that we can do these things. And it is in your son's name we ask. All God's people said. So throughout the book of Acts, we've been following the spread of the gospel. And so uh, first we saw in Jerusalem at Pentecost uh, through the teaching of the apostles uh, and the, their healings. And then there's the martyrdom of Stephen. And then last week, uh, so if you think about Jerusalem, uh, last week in Jerusalem, uh, Philip, he went north to Samaria and was preaching and teaching, and we saw many Samaritans saved. And now, uh, in, this, in this story, we see Philip, uh, who we met in chapter 6. Now he is commanded to go south and preach to Judea and eventually send, it, uh, send the gospel message to the end of the earth. And this chapter, this story, is a very practical look at how this was happening. It's a first-hand account of how the supernatural spread of the gospel comes through everyday, ordinary obedience. And so we're going to follow this scripture. We're going to break it down into three parts. First, uh, we're going to look and hear uh, a supernatural call. Then we're going to meet a surprising convert. And lastly, we're going to see it all tied together by a sovereign connection. Supernatural call, a surprising convert, and a sovereign connection. So first, a supernatural call. The story opens with an event that is not very normal. Philip is approached by an angel of the Lord, and he gives Philip this very specific command. He tells them, go to the south, toward Judea, on this road that leads to Gaza. And then, I think this is just interesting, we get this little author's note uh, where Luke tells us 
this is a desert place. Now, in Ohio, we would consider just about everywhere in the Bible a desert place. Everywhere in the Middle East, the ancient Near East is the desert. So when you have someone who lives in the Middle East calling somewhere else a desert place, you know that this place is like really a desert. It's the desert of deserts. It's, it, it's the backwoods of the ancient Near East. And so Philip, he's given this specific place to go, but no other information. He's told nothing else. The angel doesn't say why. The, uh, the angel doesn't indicate what might be going on there. He just says, uh, go down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Philip doesn't have a ton to go on. And uh, he, how does he respond? He says he rose and he went. Now, I don't think that we should take this as meaning Philip didn't have any apprehension or any nervousness about this. There were definitely things that, that he was anxious about. I don't think that Philip heard this message from the Lord and then just got up and started whistling Jesus loves you going down the street. He's human. He, he's fallible and he's broken just like you and me. But in spite of all of his brokenness, in spite of all of the ways that he is fallible and all of the, all of the ways that he is human, he rises and obeys the command of God. Even without this full picture, Philip obeys the commands of God. It's an amazing amount of faith that Philip is displaying. Because I think many times we hear, uh, maybe not commands, but we hear calls from God and we suppress it. How many times have we seen someone in public and, and felt that tug on our, our heartstrings and, and pushed it away? Or how many times have we been in the grocery store or on a plane or on the street and seen someone who needs compassion, and instead of engaging them with love, we avoid them. We put in our AirPods, we go to another street. I think we have these moments, and we recognize that they are from God, and yet sometimes we find it easier to suppress them than to engage them, like Philip does. And you might be sitting there and thinking, yeah, but that's different, Ryan, because Philip he had a direct call from an, he got to see an angel. He had a direct call from God and that we don't have. And if, if you were uh, to say that to me, I would simply hold up this book. How many commands and how many directives are we given in this book that we ignore, that we suppress? This book is just as much of a supernatural call from God as Philip was given. The speaking of God's word is just as much a supernatural call as an angel coming into your life and telling you God said this. If you believe this morning that Christ has risen from the dead and you have submitted to him as your king and that you have been given the Holy Spirit and sealed with the Holy Spirit, a supernatural event, then you have been given a supernatural call on your life. God's living word is a supernatural call on our lives. We believe, as Christians, we believe that something outside of nature has come in and taken a dramatic hold on our lives. But the Spirit's job does not stop at conversion. It actually starts at conversion. So now, with a new spirit, we have to constantly be aware of what God is telling us in his word and how he is calling us and stirring our emotions with his spirit. So if you are in Christ this morning, you have a supernatural call on your life, just the same as Philip did. And even, you look a few verses later, it's one of my favorite verses uh, in the story. Um, it's in verse, in verse uh, 29, the, the Spirit says to Philip, go over and join his chariot. And how does Philip respond? Like, okay, 
Holy Ghost. It's not, okay, like that, are you, are you sure, Spirit, are you sure it's that chariot? I don't want to get the wrong chariot here. That chariot over there? No, it says he ran. He, ra- he doesn't wait. He hears the Spirit speak to him, and he runs. That was really loud. Got your attention. He runs in the direction that the Spirit is calling him. And that was not an easy thing to do because uh, a little bit later we learn about the kind of man that Philip is called to who is unlike him in any way. So the things we know about the man in the chariot is that he's a different race, he's a different social class, he's a different nationality. They share almost nothing in common. But the Spirit tells Philip to go and Philip runs. Because Philip is unconcerned with all the things that separate him from this man. He is unconcerned with all the ways that he is different. He only cares about one thing. as being obedient to the Spirit of God. It changes how he views this man in the chariot. Obedience radically changes how we view others. When we are called to share the gospel with those we are unlike, it radically changes our heart. We no longer see people as a different race or a different political party or a different social class. We only see people as a potential brother or sister in Christ. See, at best, Philip could have seen this man as too different. That guy's too different, Spirit. But at worst, Philip could have said, that that guy cannot come into the kingdom. He is not someone who is welcome in God's family. He's not an Israelite. He's marked in all these specific ways. But that is not what Philip sees. Philip feels the Spirit's call and sees a man who is his potential brother, and he runs, runs in obedience to this surprising convert. There's a supernatural call in his life, and he goes uh, to, to meet this surprising convert. Verse 27, it teaches us four things about this this man, this surprising convert that I'm going to run through just very quickly. First, he's an Ethiopian. It's very the, the text says it multiple times. He's an Ethiopian. So he probably, one, looks distinct from other people that were in Jerusalem and in the Middle East. But more importantly, he, he is not an Israelite. He has no ethnic connection to Yahweh, the God of Abraham. So, so that's the first thing we learn. Second thing we learn is that he's a eunuch. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. So, as delicately as I can put this, this man, if you don't know what a eunuch is, this man had physical alterations to his body that made it impossible for him to father children. I'm sure a lot of y'all just sighed relief, like, ugh. (laughs) We don't want the youth pastor describing what a eunuch is. Physical alterations to his body that made it impossible to father children. He has been mutilated in a way that's not uncommon at the time, but obviously being a eunuch is not something to boast about. It's not, uh, uh, it's not a really great thing. It immediately causes difference between you and the rest of the world. So he's an Ethiopian, he's a eunuch, and we also find out that he's a court official uh, to the queen of Ethiopia. And he's not just some small-time court official, but he is the keeper of all of her treasure. He's the secretary of the treasury, Alexander Hamilton of ancient Ethiopia, if you will. So he's he's Ethiopian, he's a eunuch, he's a high-ranking government official. But the last thing we learn, this is maybe the most important thing that we learn about him, is that he is coming from Jerusalem. Why why is he coming from Jerusalem? He He was going to worship. 
He had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So this means that this eunuch was a God-fearing man. He had an idea of who the God of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, was, uh, the God of the Old Testament. But we also know that because of all these other things we know about him, that he was barred from entry uh, to the temple. He could only go one step into the temple, into uh, the, into the uh, court of the Gentiles. It was the furthest ring away from the Holy of Holies. So this man traveled 2,000 miles so he could go take one step into the temple of Jerusalem until he was barred from going any further. See, much like the Samaritans in the previous story, this Ethiopian eunuch was not seen as someone who could ever enter God's family, let alone God's presence. And so this is the man, this is uh, who the Spirit calls Philip to go evangelize. And I think it's really important that we pause and we see how this plays out. Because this is one of the most practical uh, evangelizing encounters that we ever see in the Bible. So I want to point out three really specific strategies, really specific tactics that Philip uses that he, he is evangelizing and he's acting out in obedience to this supernatural call. So first... He asks questions and listens to the answer. Asks questions and listens to the answer. So Philip has a little bit of an upper hand sometimes in this encounter because the Ethiopian is already reading the scriptures. He's already someone who wants to seek God. But Philip doesn't approach this man ready to preach at him or ready to correct him. He doesn't uh, come and ready with his own words at all. He, he, he comes and uh, approaches this chariot and he asks a question. So he asks the Ethiopian a direct question, and he listens to the man's answer. The first words out of his mouth are not his opinion about God. It's rather a question trying to find out where the Ethiopian is about God. He's not standing, right? He's not, the chariot's not going by, and he's like, hey, guy in the chariot, you need Jesus. That's not what he does. No, he doesn't inflict his words on the man. But rather, he goes up and he says, I want to know what you think. I want to know where you stand. And then after listening to what the Ethiopian has to say to find out where he stands, he begins to honestly answer his questions. He, he, he asks him a question, and, and this Ethiopian's response here in, here in, chapter, or in verse 31 is one of the most heartbreaking, like spine-shivering, I think, responses in the Bible. Because Philip goes up and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I? And I think one reason that we feel, we, I feel so deeply with that verse is because there are so many people in our church, and I was, was once like this, is I would pick up this book, and I would want to read it, and I would want to know Jesus, I would want to know his call on my life, and I would read it, and I would throw it down out of frustration, and I would say, I don't know what this means. I don't know what this is saying. Many people would, would tell me, oh, but it's, it's a, sim a, a child can understand the gospel. Uh, you know, they would say all these, these platitudes, but no one would ever answer my questions. No one would ever guide me. And we can see in Philip's response that he doesn't chastise the Ethiopian. He doesn't say, oh, anyone can understand. It's so easy to understand. He doesn't shame him, or he doesn't tell him theologically about how, well, if you have the Spirit, the Spirit can interpret uh, the, the Scriptures for you, and then you can understand. No, but rather, Philip meets him in his confusion. 
In verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, the scripture that the man was reading, he starts with where the Ethiopian is. So that is so important that when we are sharing the gospel with someone, we should be prepared to meet them where they are. Some people, when, when, we, when we share the gospel with them, will be like this Ethiopian man. They will already be longing and wanting to know who God is. But some people may deny God's existence altogether. Some people may believe in multiple gods or, or pray to nature or pray to the universe. I have friends that pray to the universe. And some people may have real pain that, are, that is associated with the church. They have real trauma or they have real anger directed at how they've been treated in the past by Christians. And so it's not enough for us to simply say, yeah, but ignore all that. Just what does the Bible say? No, we have to be prepared to meet people in their doubt, to meet people in their confusion, to meet people in their pain. Because if we don't, if we ignore all of those things, we are liable to talk at people rather than talk with them. Plus, we're able to sit and listen and meet people where they are. If we can sit with them in their anger or in their pain or in their confusion, if we are prepared to really know and engage with this person, then we can always pivot to this last strategy that Philip uses. It's Philip's best tool and it's our best tool. In verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The most effective tool in our bag, the most effective way to evangelize someone is to show them Jesus. Philip meets the Ethiopian in his question, but he does not stop there. He takes the questions. He sits in the questions, and then he turns it, and he shows him Jesus. This is how we see evangelism happening all over the New Testament. Stephen, just a few chapters later, gives this, uh, a few chapters earlier, gives this entire sermon about how all of the Old Testament was pointing to the person of Jesus. Even Jesus himself, when he is uh, walking uh, on the road to Emmaus with these two men, and he's kind of disguised himself, he is showing how everything in the Old Testament was pointing to himself, saying this is all about Jesus. This book this story, all of these Old Testament scriptures, they're not just a, a story about, they're not just uh, things about, true things about God or true things about uh, his people. This book is chiefly and most importantly about the person of Jesus. Any question, any thought, any conversation about this book should always be focused on the person of Jesus. So Philip outlines all of the scriptures. He teaches about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the Ethiopian, he believes. And then he asks, the Ethiopian is full of questions. And he asks this, this one final question in verse 36. They were going along the road, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? See, the Ethiopian's entire relationship with God from this point uh, up to this point was defined by his inability to access God. He has always been restricted from being one of God's people. But now, in this moment, 
after the belief of this surprising convert, we're able to, to go back and see how God has been tying this sovereign connection together. How he is sovereignly orchestrating this man's life to preach the gospel, not just here, but to the ends of the earth. So he asks this question, what is preventing me from being baptized? For the first time, the Ethiopian man is no longer seeing himself as restricted from God, but he's seeing as someone himself as someone who could be welcomed into God's family. He can be one of God's people. Why? What, what changed in, in the, the teaching of the scriptures to what Philip has told him? What about the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus has this Ethiopian so convinced that he can be welcomed in? As far as the Ethiopian knows, there are no Ethiopians. There are no Gentiles in God's family, and there are certainly no eunuchs. So what is it? Why is he so convinced that he asks, what prevents me from being baptized? And here's what I think. If you hear anything this morning, if you get anything out of this time, hear this. It's because the Ethiopian man can finally see himself in the story of Jesus. Here's a man who is an outsider, who left his home to be among the people of God. And most distinctly, the defining feature of his entire life has been the mutilation of his body. His whole life has been defined by the way that he is broken, by the way he was potentially abused. And for once, for the first time, when he heard the story of Jesus, this is what he heard. That God left his home to go be among the people of God and have his body broken. Have his body mutilated and hung in shame all to save him. It wasn't just because the Ethiopian learned that Jesus came to die for him, but the eunuch saw that Jesus had become like him. His body had been broken and mutilated just like his He saw that God was no longer just out of reach, someone that he would continually be, be barred from and barred from and barred from, like an older brother when he holds your head and you're trying to hit him. It's not like that. But he saw God as someone who had fully experienced the pain and the shame and the mutilation, and he had done also all of it willingly to save him. And the Ethiopian couldn't say no. So what does he do? He's baptized and he rejoices as he goes. Because when we understand, when we fully understand what Jesus has done for us, it turns our confusion to celebration. We don't know how long this interaction took, but we know that this Ethiopian man went from having continual questions. Why does God say this? Why can't I understand? Why can't I be baptized? He goes from that confusion to rejoicing. Now, I want to step, I'm stepping out of the pulpit for a second. This is just brief aside. Um, when the Ethiopian is baptized, it's done just him and Philip, uh, and I uh, think that this is a Priests, uh, a descriptive act. This is something that 
uh, the Bible is just describing. It's not a prescriptive act. So it's not telling us, hey, you should go baptize people on their own. It's a, it's a Baptist doctrine. I think it's a biblical doctrine that baptism is done within the local church, within the body. Um, and so I think it's important that we understand that some things in the Bible are descriptive. They're describing what's happening. And some of them are prescriptive. Hey, we should do this. Another descriptive thing would be like uh, the disciples casting lots, the know God's will. I don't tell the youth to go like gamble to figure out what God wants them to do. Descriptive, not prescriptive. So that's just a little sidebar. So the Ethiopian, he goes off and he, he goes and he goes in celebration. And Philip, this weird thing happens to Philip and it says, uh, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And so I don't really know if that means like he was given like super speed and he like runs off or he was teleported. But um, Philip is carried away by the spirit um, and the eunuch goes off and they likely never see each other ever again. What can we learn from this encounter? What can we understand? What can we appreciate? We can see that a God who was previously unattainable to us, a God that was not available, that was barred, he, he, we were barred from entering his family, he not only made himself available to us, but he chose to adopt us into his family. And he didn't do this at no cost to himself, but he put on flesh like ours that was torn from his bones. He went through mental, spiritual, and physical temptation and torment. Also, he could look at you in your brokenness and he could declare, mine. You are mine. In that moment when the Ethiopian believed a man who was uh, so nationally different, ethnically different, he was um, scarred and mutilated, God looked at him and said, you are mine. So many of us, I think so many times, wrongly believe that God is so righteous and so holy that he is so distant. We believe that we can't get close, but the beauty of the gospel is the invitation to come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Through Jesus, through his humanity, we can have an intimate connection to God that seems impossible. One final note to end on. I think this story has one of the most amazing endings of any story in the Bible. And it isn't stated super clearly here. So Philip is whisked away by the Spirit and he goes to continue to preach. And our brother, the, the Ethiopian, he's celebrating, he's rejoicing. But eventually, he goes back to his chariot and he picks up his scroll. And where he left off was uh, the book of Isaiah and the 53rd was the 53rd chapter to us. But as the chariot rolls down the desert back to Ethiopia, he would have continued to read and he would have gotten to these words um, in Isaiah 56. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. This is what the prophet Isaiah said. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Listen to this. 
And let not the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You cannot tell me that this was not all ordained, that God orchestrated Philip to interrupt this Ethiopian's reading at this exact moment, so that at the, the, in the minutes that after the Ethiopian was saved, he turned around and he read this very promise that was just lived out in his life. He was the first eunuch who had ever been welcomed into the kingdom of God. He was the first one who has a monument and a name in the Lord's house better than sons and daughters. And so then he goes south and Philip goes north and they both get to tell this beautiful story of how God is sovereignly connecting his people in Jerusalem and in Judea and now in Samaria and now to the very ends of the earth. One of the most beautiful things is that this passage that he's reading in Isaiah is not just true for him, but it's true for us too. We are the foreigners who God has welcomed in. We are the people who have been given access, who have been given a name and a monument greater than sons and daughters. We have been promised much. This one act of obedience by Philip took the gospel to a far distant part of the world. The Spirit used Philip to preach up and down the coast of Judea, used the Ethiopian man to preach all throughout Africa. How many gospel transformations can trace their lineage back to this one event. By 2050, 40% of the Christian population of the entire world is going to live in sub-Saharan Africa. That stat is only true because of this story, because of this event, because of one act. One obedient deacon, hearts and minds began to be changed 2,000 miles away from Jerusalem. It's an actual historical butterfly effect. This one thing changed the entirety of a whole continent, which it went on to change the entirety of a whole world. If Philip had been like Jonah and ran away from the people who looked and acted and thought different than him, who knows how many millions of brothers and sisters would have never heard the gospel. It's an amazing story, but it also demands a question of us that we must answer. Philip was sent to the Ethiopian. Someone was sent to you. Who are you sent to? Who are you sent to? Church, what if we began to see every gospel conversation as the start of something huge? What if instead of fearing people who are different than us or people who might judge us, we start prayerfully and lovingly engaging them in person, online, wherever it may be, lovingly and prayerfully engaging those who are different than us? What if we started to meet people where they are? What if we started to confront and answer hard questions? What if we simply showed people Jesus? The Jesus that became like them to save them. What would our church look like? What would our community look like? What would our own hearts look like? Church, this is all attainable. God has already paved the road. We simply have to walk on it. If we want to start a gospel revolution, if we want to see hearts and minds changed around the world, we must simply heed and obey 
the, world, the words of Scripture. We have to step out in obedience. We have to practice everyday means of grace. If you want to see immense change, vast change, gospel change in the world around you, you don't have to go back millions of years and crush a butterfly. You only need to look back 2,000 years and obey the voice of the Savior that was crushed for you. Let's pray. Father, you are sovereign. You are holy. You are righteous. You are upright. You are good in every way. And God, we thank you this morning, not that we get this story in your word, but that this encounter really happened in real time. These are real people in real history. And God, you orchestrated this from eternity past so that we might learn and know know you better and and live more according to your purpose this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of people like Philip and the testimony of brothers like the Ethiopian. God, that stories like this help us be unafraid of people who are different. Help us be unafraid to show people Jesus. But most importantly, God, they show us, stories like this show us that We don't have to be afraid of you. If we are in Christ, he has taken your wrath. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. And he has brought us close. Though we were foreigners outside of his family, he has adopted us in. God, we praise you for that truth. Help us, God. Send us your spirit. Use your spirit to Stir our emotions to those who are different. Use us uh, to preach the gospel, to show Jesus, to meet people where they are, to answer and or to ask questions and to listen to them to someone this week. God, I know you are sending me to someone, someone's. God, change their heart. God, use me. Let me act in small ways of obedience that the hearts of those who are far from you might be changed and they might no longer just be my friend. They might just no longer be someone I knew. But they would be my brother or my sister. Use us this morning, God. Send us people who might be changed by your gospel. Let us start to see a gospel revolution that started 2,000 years ago on a hill with a savior who was mutilated, who was broken for us. In his name, all God's people said, amen. If you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know the king who was broken and crushed for you, I would would love to, to introduce you. I would love to tell you about his life, his death and his resurrection. There will be other men up here, if you just want to come pray, the way you want to respond is to stand and to sing and to worship him and to let him shape your heart. Respond that way. Let's respond. Please stand.